we are in our fourth chapter of Ruth today. Four sermons, four chapters. We actually have one more to come next week, and that'll be the one that ties it all together, and we, we finish, we see the final culmination of God's purposes in Ruth next week. But I've titled this one, The Love of the Redeemer. I didn't title it in time to get it on the slides, but uh, we're gonna call this The Love of the Redeemer, Okay. And as we begin chapter four, there remain some unanswered questions in this story. First, whether Boaz or the unnamed kinsman will become the wife of Ruth, the Moabitess. And second, whether they will produce a son or an heir to Elimelech and Naomi. Now, the details of the second question, we know the outcome because we've read the book. But the details of the second question I leave to next week. I think Dave will touch on some of that and the, and the implications of that son that is born. And it's beautiful that we get to talk about that the day after Christmas, when unto us a son is born. But today we're going to focus on the first question, which is, who is the Redeemer? Who will be the Redeemer for Ruth? And I hope you'll find that there are a few more surprises, let's say, for the careful reader. They fall into the categories of how this redemption process works, who exactly is being redeemed, and why one redeemer proceeds with joy while the other declines. So let's pray for grace before we begin this. Oh God, we pray that you would please grant us insight into your ways as we read and study your word and as we hear the good news of your love for us. Lord, grant us grace to live according to your revealed will for us. And may you be magnified this morning in all that we do and say and think and believe. Amen. Amen. Ruth 4, chapter 1. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat there. When the kinsman redeemer he had mentioned came along, Boaz said, come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Before we go any further into the details of this passage, it's important to understand some of the background for the legal or administrative process that's about to begin. The first question really concerns this term kinsman redeemer or guardian redeemer as it's sometimes translated what exactly is a kinsman redeemer and how does this role work so the the Hebrew term for this is goel and it's related to the verb to redeem gaal but it's goel means the kinsman who redeems there are three texts in the scriptures that really touch closely on the roles of the Redeemer. And they fall into three categories. Property, people, and justice. Leviticus 25 explains that the role of the kinsman Redeemer is to buy back a field or property that has been leased to someone outside of the family clan. Later in Leviticus 25, we, we see that the kinsman redeemer is also to buy back the freedom of a family member 
who has been reduced by poverty to indentured servitude or slavery. And in Numbers 35, we have the description of the Goel Hadam, or the kinsman who redeems over blood or avenges blood. The NIV translate that as the avenger of blood, but it's the same name, just with a modifier. And the, the role here is to avenge or to obtain justice for an unjustly killed family member. So those are the three roles that we have that are specifically described for the kinsman redeemer. But as one of my commentaries pointed out, despite popular belief, the Bible is not really an exhaustive list of Israelite customs and laws. It doesn't cover every conceivable situation. And it doesn't give a comprehensive list of duties for the kinsman redeemer in this case. There's more that's left unsaid. And some of that comes to us when we look at the use of this same word to describe the Lord. Because the word goel is used many more times of God than it is of men. Israel was redeemed from slavery, right? Redeemed from slavery in Egypt by their goel. In exile, the people of God were promised redemption. Jeremiah says that the Lord will ransom Jacob and redeem them from the hand of those stronger than them. And of course, God is also described as a father to the fatherless and as a goel of widows, right? A defender of widows. So God protects individuals and he protects his covenant people from injustice and disaster and death. Robert Hubbard, whose commentary I used heavily, says that the kinsman redeemer was to be like Yahweh, was to be an advocate who stood up for the vulnerable family members and who took responsibility for unfortunate relatives. The duty of a goel was broad. It involved duties to both the living and the dead. Because the flourishing of the clan involves not only the current conditions of the living, but also the legacy of the dead. So that leads me to something I just need to say about what's called Leverite marriage. That's brother-in-law marriage. You've heard of this. It's illustrated in the story of Judah and Tamar in Genesis 20, or 38, and also described in Deuteronomy 25. Now, neither of those texts really links this practice or this custom to the role of the Redeemer, but they are related in principle, and that's gonna play a role in our story. The principle is simple, that there's a duty among brothers to preserve the family line. If a married man died without heirs, a brother was responsible to produce an heir so that the memory and the standing of the deceased would live on. Now Hubbard insists that the story of Naomi and Boaz and Ruth cannot be rightly understood until we grasp how important it was to an Israelite to have a descendant or an heir living on the family land, in the promised land. He said, you know, we don't fully understand ancient Israel's vision of life after death, but a big part of that 
depended on this idea of descendants living on their ancestral soil in the promised land. So this impulse is going to provide, this impulse to provide an heir, that is, is going to, to play a role in our story, but not strictly as the process of brother-in-law marriage because neither Boaz nor the other kinsmen were brothers of Elimelech. Instead, this duty gets incorporated by Boaz into the kinsman-redeemer role as he follows the principles of hesed, of loyal devotion and of loving kindness and covenant love. And he follows the spirit of the law rather than the letter of the law. So let me just summarize question one. What is this kinsman redeemer? Well, it's someone, a senior family member somehow who redeems, restores, protects, preserves the family. And the duty of the kinsman redeemer is to bear the cost of buying back the land, of making the family whole again whenever that's threatened. He pays for the return of the land. He pays for the freedom for the slave. And he pays or he ensures that justice is done. Now, there were two kinsmen redeemers in this story. And they responded quite differently to the duties offered them. The first one accepted and then declined his role as a kinsman redeemer. And the second one accepted and joyfully performed his role as kinsman redeemer. Picking up in verse two. Boaz took 10 elders of the town and said, sit here, and they did so. And then he said to the kinsman redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our brother Elimelech. Again, not brother, but kinsman. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me so I will know, for no one has the right to do it except you, and I am next in line. I will redeem it, he said. At this point in the story, it appears that the budding romantic plan of Ruth and Boaz is uh, foiled, right? Pretty threatened. Boaz, as a man of integrity, he submits himself to the cultural customs and hierarchy. He submits himself to the will of God. He's second in line. If the other man exercises his right, Boaz is out. And with Ruth's character and reputation, it seems like, why wouldn't the first man marry her and take Naomi's land, take over Naomi's land and property? It looks bad for the romantic element here. Is he going to passively give up the girl? Turns out Boaz actually has a plan. And he has a plan to steer the proceedings in such a way that he wants them to go. And that gets us to the second question. Who exactly is getting redeemed here? Who exactly is this redemption for? So when we left chapter three, we saw Ruth essentially proposing marriage to Boaz and Boaz saying, yes, I will take care of this. I am gonna seek resolution for this tomorrow morning. 
right? For Ruth's future. But after he convenes the town elders and gathers a quorum, he starts the conversation with the other kinsmen by saying, did you know that Naomi is selling her land? Now there's some complicated questions about how Naomi can dispose of this land, but we're gonna leave those to another day. It's, it's one more of those elements that I've come across as I've been studying this story. Uh, about one commentator says, uh, much more was presumably understood by the audience, uh, the original audience, than by more recent ones. You know, there's just a certain amount of this that is unsaid. But you have to know that the land owned by Elimelech was in danger of falling permanently out of the, the hands of the family of Elimelech. Elimelech. It was probably already leased by others, but with no further sons in the family line, it would either pass out of the family forever or potentially be passed to the nearest male relative, most likely this kinsman redeemer. So in verse four, when he says, I will redeem it, things do look pretty bad for Boaz and Ruth. But it looks pretty good for the kinsman because he just makes a, a manageable initial investment and presumably also provides for the ongoing maintenance of the widow Naomi. But in exchange for that, he gains the social and the personal credit and respect for performing the Redeemer's role. He gains significant addition to his land holdings. He gains additional produce from the land. And because there is no heir, it becomes part of his legacy for his heirs. There's no heir for, for Elimelech. It becomes his own in perpetuity. Well, what about Ruth? Right? What's going to happen to her? Is the love story crumbling now under the administrative law? Well, in verse 5, Boaz drops the bomb on the kinsman. He says, when you buy the land from Naomi, also Ruth you thereby purchase in order to raise up the name of the deceased over his inheritance. So Boaz here cleverly links this redemption of family property and the, the procreation of an heir for this deceased relative through marriage to Ruth. Again, nowhere else are these things linked, but Boaz is he's following the spirit of what these customs are about. And Hubbard's commentary points out that it's no great leap to see this connection when you consider how strongly Israel valued the, the survivorship of families through an heir. And the fact that no one objects in the story suggests that it was both sensible to them and credible to them as an argument. It was credible, at least to the ancient audience. Right? Not so much for us, but it was for them. Well, at this point, we have the, the elements in place to answer the second question, which is who exactly is being redeemed or what exactly is being redeemed? You know, the initial focus is on the property, and the property is being redeemed by the kinsman redeemer, but it's being redeemed for the sake of the people involved. First of all, Interestingly, for the family line of Elimelech, who otherwise essentially faces extinction. So strange as it sounds to us, this 
this dead man Elimelech in the eyes of his community will somehow be redeemed, benefit from the redemption of his property if there's a production of, if there's an heir, right? If there's a son that is born to Ruth. Now Naomi is also in view. The land is hers to deal with currently and her well-being and her future security and her support and her family legacy is also tied up with the land and with an heir. And Malon, Ruth's husband, now deceased, is also in view in verse 5, right? To raise up the name of the deceased with his property. He had no children to inherit his property, and his family line also will end unless an heir is produced through Ruth. And of course, finally, there's Ruth, right? The key to all of this the key to the redemption of all the others. With a husband, she becomes the hope for the family line. And as we shall see in the surprise ending of this story, she also bears within her the hope of all Israel. And of course, the hope of all the world. So who then is redeemed by the kinsman redeemer Boaz? The hopeless Israelite dead? without heirs who face annihilation, the bitter Israelite widow who lost her husband and sons, and the lonely and poor Moabite widow who becomes the key to restoring hope for all of them. So we've talked about what the Goel does. He protects, he preserves, he redeems, restores the family. And we've seen what the redemption Involves It's both the land and the people connected to it, both living and dead. So if we return to the story at verse five, Boaz has changed the equation. Marrying Ruth as part of this deal complicates the decision for the kinsman, right? She's young, presumably fertile. No, she has no children to this point, but if she has children... It is additional mouths to feed, right? But if she has a son, that son will become Elimelech's heir. And when that son comes of age, the property that the kinsman redeemer is obtaining will revert back to that son of Ruth. The deal is not quite as sweet as it first seemed. He may also have some other objections. We don't know. I mean, her, her foreigner status may have played a role. He may have objected to marrying a Moabite woman. He may have uh, feared the consequences of having two wives. That's not anything to be taken lightly if you read some other parts of the scripture. We know only that he judges the situation with Ruth attached to it now to entail more risk than benefit. So he says, in that case, I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself, Boaz. I cannot do it. So Boaz has done it, right? The love story subplot reaches its climax here. He navigated these proceedings in a way that allowed him to keep his personal promise of redemption to Ruth. Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, 
Today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Malon. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabitess, Malon's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property, so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from the town records. Today you are witnesses. Then the elders and all those at the gate said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you, Boaz, have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. And that brings me to the third question for the morning. Why does Boaz act as redeemer when the unnamed kinsman redeemer declines? Well, note first that the the first man is not really condemned in the story. Perhaps because, uh, you know, he's unnamed, and that might mean something. It may be that he's dishonored himself in some way and isn't named in the story for that reason. But the text seems to suggest that he merely acted practically. He acted soberly, much like Orpah did in chapter one, when she returned to her father's home rather than come to Israel with, with Ruth and, uh, and Naomi. He didn't take on any more than he thought he could handle, and he avoided taking any outsized risks that might endanger his own legacy. Well, Boaz, on the other hand, did not exactly play it safe. He willingly accepted the risk and the likely economic loss or cost to him of marrying another woman, supporting another family, and then losing the basis on which he was expanding his, his uh, estate. Because a son is going to take that land back to the family of Elimelech. He's not going to have a long-term gain on this. But he acted decisively. He took on the burden of redemption. He acted decisively for the good of others. And here, of course, we come back to the theme of hesed, right? Of covenant love or loving kindness or of loyal devotion. Just as in chapter one, the author compared the extraordinary hesed of Ruth to the ordinary hesed of Orpah. Here, the extraordinary actions of Boaz are highlighted by contrast with the ordinary pragmatism of the first kinsman. And hesed becomes the character quality, once again, that shines through. It shines through the leading characters in this story usually through the human characters of Ruth and Boaz. And it's, it's almost plain to see now that this example of Hesed from Boaz illustrates some of the character qualities that we see in our ultimate Redeemer, Jesus. 
He sees and cares for the vulnerable. He responds to the needs of the vulnerable. From his own resources, he provides for them. He submits himself to the will of God. He keeps his promises. He sacrifices his well-being for the well-being of others. And as our story begins to wind up, there are some more themes that are now fully developed. We see that God rewards those who show hesed to other human beings and toward God. Or to put it another way, this, these acts of loving kindness and acts of loyal devotion do not go unnoticed by God. Both Boaz and Ruth attend to issues of family loyalty and issues of family well-being above their own, their own personal desires. Both are richly rewarded for this loyal devotion to others and to God. The blessings of the community on Boaz rightly foreshadow the end of the book. Boaz does gain standing. He does gain fame in Bethlehem and in all Israel and all the world, far beyond. The Lord grants them both a son, and the son becomes a blessing to them and to Naomi. But the son also becomes a blessing to Israel as the father of King David, and ultimately, the father of the father of King David, and ultimately, as an ancestor of Jesus our Lord. Ruth not only gets her man in marriage, but she receives that security that she and Naomi sought in returning back to Bethlehem. And this is portrayed by the author as a reward for her faithful loyalty, both to Naomi and toward God. And furthermore, she transitions from this identity as an outsider, a Moabite widow, into the fruitful wife of a true Israelite, into the mother of the father of the father of King David. She comes fully integrated into this people of Israel. An outsider has become a true Israelite. And the community acknowledges that by calling on the Lord to bless her like Rachel and Leah, like the founding mothers of Israel. Imagine that blessing for a desolate Moabite widow. But that, according to our story, is the path of loving kindness and loyal devotion to God. And here is one other fully developed theme of this story, that the God of Israel desires to redeem aliens and strangers. He desires to redeem all who are weak, all who are desperate and lost, into fellowship with him and with his people. All who respond to his loving kindness with, fi- with faithfulness are welcome. In this fourth week of Advent, the traditional theme is love. This story of redemption is the story of God's Hesed love worked out in ordinary human lives. And for all of us who truly trust Jesus Christ with our life, this story is our story. Who gets redeemed? All of us. 
who are disappointed, like Naomi, or who are bitter or empty, like Naomi. All who are spiritually dead, Elimelech and Malon. All who are powerless outsiders, like Ruth. All who are misfits, don't belong. All of us are Gentiles. We're all outside of God's initial people Israel, but we are ingrafted by his redemptive love. We are the ones who need a redeemer. And how are we redeemed? Well, by Jesus, the ultimate kinsman redeemer, who for the joy set before him, he bore the cost of redeeming us from sin and slavery and death. He bore the cost of redeeming us from annihilation. And why does our Redeemer act? Because the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. His hesed never comes to an end. He welcomes all who will receive and respond to his love. Let's pray. Jesus, you are our redeemer, our protector, our defender and provider. Like Boaz, you joyfully accept your work of redemption from your deep reservoir of love from your people or of love for your people. And for this, you are rightly glorified with a name that is above all names, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And all God's people say, amen.